you know, and I, I try to pick out histories that I didn't learn about, not necessarily everyone hasn't learned. But for me, like, I didn't know anything about the conquest of New Mexico. Why did I not learn that in the history books? Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mess screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials needed to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Enrique Figueredo, a Venezuelan-American artist and an assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas at Austin. We talk about his travels around the Southwest, visiting some of the earliest churches in what we now call the United States, and making rubbings from inscriptions on the walls as well as his potential family connections to the region. We also talk about being curious about people's migration and seeking out the histories you weren't taught in school. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to rewrite a little history with Enrique Figueredo. Hi Enrique, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for joining me and for Bearing with me while I changed time zones again and had to do math on time zones again incorrectly. <laughs> no, I get it. I've been back and forth between Austin and Santa Fe. Even though it's just one hour, it's still confusing sometimes, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we jump on in to the questions I have for you, I would love it if you could just introduce yourself and let people know the who you are, where you are, what you do questions. Yeah, well, my name is Enrique Figueredo, and I am currently in Austin, Texas, where I am a professor, assistant professor of practice in printmaking at um, University of Texas. What else can I tell you? I mean, I, grew, I was born in Venezuela, in Caracas, and I moved to San Francisco, California when I was around six, six years old and just kind of bounced around the country. Spent most of my time in San Francisco and New York and then in the Southwest now. Yeah. And I'm a printmaker. I'm an artist, but I, my focus is in printmaking and primarily in woodcuts, but I love it all. Lithography and tagline, all that, all the nerdy, yeah. all you can nerd out for hours on that. That's, Beautiful. A, that's, a, that's a brief little summary there. Perfect. And so you said that you grew up in Venezuela. What role did art have in the early part of your life? Were you aware of it? Was it sort of museums? Were you a kid who was drawing? That early landscape of art for you, what did it look like? Well, it was in, in San Francisco, I think, when I became aware 
of of art. It was mostly just looking at street art. San Francisco at that time in the late 80s, well, it was a long time ago. The graffiti scene was just erupting, a lot of street art, a lot of wheat pasting. And that's when I kind of caught my attention. I didn't really go to museums much. I don't, I don't know why. With school, we would go, but it was mostly the traditional big museums. So we didn't really look at contemporary art. But yeah, I, I would say it was mostly with street art and then comics, um, watching Saturday morning cartoons. Back then, it was like Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. And I just loved the artwork. It was so good. And then that got me into comics. So yeah, I think it was a combination of, of street art and then popular cartoons and comics. Yeah. And how old were you at this time when you're getting this exposure? Yeah, like seven, eight, nine, right around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The good years, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so what about making art yourself? Well, that was right around the same time because I tried to draw the Transformers and the the GoBots and all and you know the GI Joes. I try to draw them like I saw them in, in the cartoons and, and the comic books, and I just couldn't do it. it. They were awful. I'm sure if I looked at them now, they'd be amazing. <laughs> I think my mom has a few of them. She kept she kept all those drawings. They're somewhere, but I'm sure they were terrible drawings. And so I would ask my dad to draw them for me because my dad is an artist, not in not someone we would classify professionally as an artist, but he he drew maps when he was really young from helicopters, like topographical maps. And, and then he just paints for fun on his free time. So he's not classically trained, but you know, he just has it in his blood, I guess. So he would draw the transformers for me and the Ninja Turtles and, and they came out incredible, like just like the cartoons. And I was like, how do you do that? How are you? This is before Google. This is before internet. So he would just draw it from his brain. He would just make up his own characters and cartoons and he would just draw them. And they, to me, they looked exactly like what I saw on TV. So I thought that was amazing that, that, that the brain and the hand can, can do that. And so that's when I became obsessed with drawing. And then ever since then, I just started drawing everything, street art, buildings and San, architecture in San Francisco. And of course, comics. Yeah. No, it's so interesting because I remember that feeling so well as a kid. And it's funny because I'm here in my childhood bedroom. (laughs) So I feel particularly connected to early kid memories. And one of them is that feeling of as, as a kid, just trying to draw something that looks anything like what you're trying to do feels almost impossible. And Mm -hmm. then you see older kids or parents or older cousins and they can do it almost effortlessly. Like you could say, just like draw me a rabbit and they can just do it, you know? And it does seem kind of like a superpower to a kid because it seems so far out of reach Mm -hmm. to be able to do it yourself, which is, yeah. And then growing up and learning to harness that I think is, is, is an interesting process. Yeah. For sure. And so your father drew the topographical maps as his profession? Is that, or was that a hobby? I just, I'm just curious. Yeah. No, yeah, that was, I mean, right out of, at a school, he got a job doing that. And I don't know the details of it, but it was right out of, out of school. And I think his, my grandfather got him that job. I'm not quite sure, but he, yeah, he was, that was his job for a little while. 
And then that changed because we moved, ended up moving to the States. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure of the timeline, but yeah, he was, he was, he was drawing a ton of maps from helicopters, which I thought was amazing. And then that comes into like, I don't know why, but I'm obsessed with maps. Maybe that landscape and like trajectories and trade routes. And I think that all comes from seeing him do that and also be interested and, and my grandfather wasn't a road, like an engineer of roads mm. in Venezuela, just creating new roads and highways. And so I don't I guess that those things travel from generation to generation. Really? As easy as that sounds, I feel like that's it. That's in, in, in your kind of your, your view or your periphery, you know. I was thinking it's, he's essentially a professional artist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, so, so thinking like as a, as a young person, you would have gotten that input, right? That you can make a living creating visuals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so interesting. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I assume that's why when I got really into drawing and wanted to go to art school, he was just like, do it, you know, go for it. You know, instead of being like, eh, maybe you can be an engineer or a doctor. Yeah. yeah. I was like, no, I want to, I want to make drawings. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So in that case too, where did where did you go to art school and what was that time like for you? Yeah, I didn't really study art in high school. I don't think there was a really there was many resources for that at at in high school. There was like a generic like kind of umbrella art class and I just I did it and it was fun, but I don't think it was like focused enough to really get my attention. And I was really, at that point I was really into graffiti and street art. Like all I was doing was drawing in black books and, you know, hanging out with all these graffiti artists. It was really a lot of fun. But so I ended up going to art school at SUNY Purchase for my undergrad. And the funny story is that when I applied, I didn't originally think I was going to go to art school. I went to actually got a scholarship to go study chemistry Hmm. in a school at upstate New York in Oswego because I was really good at math and chemistry. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a chemist. And I was really into it. I was pretty good at it. And then I went to Venezuela on a family trip. And it was the first time I had gone to Venezuela since I had come when I was a six-year-old. So when I was 18, so 12 years passed without me ever returning. And I finally got the chance with paperwork and all that stuff, finally was able to return and it blew my mind seeing where I was born and meeting my family for the first time and seeing the art there. I went to museums there and I didn't know that there was all these super talented, prolific, amazing Venezuelan and Latinx artists mm-hmm. that you don't see in museums here. And, I, and it just like, and I already had a passion for drawing. So when I got back to the States after that trip, I dropped out of the chemistry program and decided to go to art school. Um, which at that time, everyone was like, are you crazy? You have a scholarship to go learn chemistry at this great school in upstate New York. And I was like, no, I want to do this. You know, I want to, I want to draw, I want to do street art. And so then I applied to art school at SUNY Purchase and my entire portfolio was all graffiti. <laughs> and the, and the, the people reviewing the, the portfolios, one of them I'm still in touch with, who was a professor there, I think now retired Murray Zimmelis, was like, look, I can't let you in with this portfolio are you serious right now i'm like yeah this is what i do i graffiti and comic books and and he was like look i tell you what because i can see that you can you, you like drawing you can draw but go back give me a couple still lifes give me a couple portraits give me a couple landscapes with a little bit of this 
and then we'll talk. And I did. I went back. So I got rejected the first time. And then I went back the next year and presented a new portfolio with all the traditional stuff. And I got into to art school and then did my four years there. And then I went to Rutgers for grad school. That's really funny. Yeah. That they're, they're just, that's so funny though, that like, that they couldn't let you in with graffiti. Cause like he obviously saw that you knew how to draw, you knew how to compose things, but it was just, it's just funny. I don't know what kind of barrier that was to, that you would have to get over to just let someone in who's just doing graffiti. I don't know. Yeah. Because it's like a, a portfolio of misdemeanors or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because I guess they, the entire committee has to, right. you know, unanimously, unanimously decide on the, on the quality of the work. And I guess it's, street art still doesn't fall under that like fine art category right so I, i'm not sure but yeah i'm just happy that i got a second chance to yeah try again. yeah yeah it's it's funny it's a bit tangential but i saw a documentary recently i don't know if it's a documentary it's, it's a little news story do you, do you know the the japan national tv network nhk no i don't so the, it's sort of like pbs but for japan and they did a whole series recently about Thai street artists mm. and and how they fit into the political climate of Thailand, which is a bit turbulent, but then also the really severe sort of censorship in Thailand. And almost every single street artist that they talked to who's doing this this work also had like been given a window in her maze in London or something like that, you know? So it's yeah. like, well, well, street art doesn't necessarily have like the fine art stamp, it can jump, you know, from the streets to hot couture mm -hmm. in a way that I think fine art really doesn't. And then actually have more of a dialogue within culture, I think as well, because it's actually being seen in, on the side of a building, mm -hmm. but then also in a window in a shopping center. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. I think street artists, that's what we're going to call them. They, yeah, the, they're super versatile and they're, they can move within all the areas of, of art and of fine art. You know, they can be in a gallery, they can be in the street, they can do installation, they can do, yeah, like you said, like couture and print advertising, like they can just, do, they exist anywhere they want. So I think they've really got it made, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, so you went, you went up going to art school and to grad school Mm -hmm. what point does printmaking come into your life and you start to understand that it's a whole part of art making that can be a part of your practice? Yeah. when So it happened pretty quick, actually. In, um, so I got into SUNY Purchase and I decided to major in graphic design because I thought, okay, comic books, graffiti, I think like advertising and logo. I was really into all that stuff and identity and stuff like that. And Plus, I wanted to do something that I knew would make money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my parents were like, all right, fine. You're going to go to art school. You can drop out of chemistry. All right, well, you're going to do something <laughs> that's going to make money because that's you're, you're crazy for doing that. But so I was like, okay, graphic design. And I was into it. I loved it. You know, I still use some of those skills as, as a printmaker, especially like separating color and, and Photoshop and InDesign. You know, mm -hmm. But I took an introduction to woodcut class as an elective, like my junior year 
just kind of like, oh, okay, I'll, let me try this out. Because you had to take all these electives. I already taken painting. I took sculpture. I took photography. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll try this printmaking thing out. I had no idea what it was. And I took the intro to woodcut class. And I was like, immediately just fell in love with it. Just like using the, the, the carving tools and getting splinters and the fact that you're drawing, but then you're also carving and it's a block of wood and you're inking and you're printing. It's just, I don't, I think it was just like the labor involved in operating the press and like inking. It was very physical. And I just, I was kind of burnt out of being on a computer all day long, every day. And it just kind of just, just technically just clicked for me. And I love drawing and I felt like graphic design, although you draw, you really don't draw as much, you know, you can do some basic, you know, but with printmaking, the foundation is drawing. Everything comes from a drawing. So I was, I got really into it so much so that I took the, the advanced woodcut class the following semester. And my intro class was with Ann Gilman, who really was like, wow, you, you, you're, really into this you're kind of a natural you should you should take the advanced class so i did and i had no idea who i would be taking the class with and the class was taught by antonio frusconi the super famous latinx printmaker he's now passed away but at that time he was my professor i had no idea who he was yeah and they're like oh you're taking a class with frusconi oh my god And i was like who's that and they're like what so that just opened me up to a whole nother world of printmakers in latin america south america and then I was completely, completely hooked. And just that's all I wanted to do was make wood blocks and do research on, on the history of, of printmaking. And, um, and so then I dropped out of, I didn't drop out, but then I stopped my, I stopped right in my junior year of graphic design and then started a new major in printmaking. <laughs> Again, everyone was like, are you crazy? What are you doing? You know? So like I got a double major, but I focused on printmaking and I did my thesis in undergrad and in a bunch of woodblock prints and all my graphic design buddies were like, you're a trader. You know? <laughs> Look at you over there with the fine art because design and, and fine art, they're always not that they fight, but they are, they're always competing for space to show their work mm-hmm. in institution and in academia. So I think, I think it was quite funny, but yeah, so that's how I got into, uh, into printmaking. Yeah. I, I had a friend who went to RISD for painting and she became friends with a design student there. And they just talked about how like people would be like, you're like crossing the picket lines. Like when they would hang out, they like weren't into it. They were like, three horns don't play with long necks. You know? <laughs> I like that's a land before time reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another good Yeah, I, I think I think we're about the yeah, about the same generations. That's so wonderful that like you really came to it, it sounds like so organically. And just by doing that process of sort of following I mean, is is maybe cheesy as it sounds, but truly like following your heart, being like, no, like this is my calling, like this is where I'm supposed to end up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that takes sometimes like a lot of courage in the face of peeling back the sort of correct safe choices from chemistry to graphic design to printmaking. Mm -hmm. I've also found at least in my own personal life, whenever I haven't followed that voice that's saying, this is where you need to go. And I say, no, 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 I'm going to do the logical thing. I'm going to do the safe thing. I always end up like miserable or unfulfilled or just like, it just, I end up always circling back to where I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. 
and it just takes longer. And it's just, at least for me, I don't know, maybe some people have like a stronger force of will and they can, they can ride the course of, of, of logic and safety. <laughs> but in my case, I, I always end up just, you know, ending up back in what I think is truly my course in life, but only just like a couple years later than I would be. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think a couple years is fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of your own relationship to printmaking and how it evolved, when did you sort of feel like you started to find a voice that was your own? It sounds like you had incredible mentors, incredible inputs from people. And, you know, you had all of this exposure to the incredible print history. And then when did you start to get a practice that you were like, oh, this looks, this is Enrique. Like this is, this is what I can really dive into and start to make my voice and my stamp within the context of all this history that, that you knew and were interacting with. Hmm. That's a good question. I think it was when I started to read a lot and do a lot of research. I didn't really do that before. I would just draw whatever came to my mind, however silly it was, or, you know, something mythical or cartoony or a blend of a bunch mm -hmm. of different iconography. I would just put it on a plate and print it and just whatever I was thinking, whatever I was seeing in the news, or I would just take elements of, of, of whatever I was absorbing in, in current events or pop culture and kind of make these like mashups of, of content and printing them. But then it, I started really, I was like, okay, what am I doing? Like you, you're asking what, when did you get your voice? I started to really think about, okay, like what do I, I'm, I don't want to represent or try to represent things that I'm not sure about, or like, I don't have knowledge in, or what am I doing regurgitating pop culture? Like, and it's mm -hmm. fine for a minute. Like you said, two years of trying to find what your voice, you know? So, and then I started, okay, like, what am I into? And I, and I decided I was really into the oil industry, for example, and like the industries that shaped the places that I'm from. So like Venezuela and San Francisco and all the places I've been and like where my, my family's from, they're from Spain and how were they involved in these trade routes and all these just kind of, but then doing the research. So I knew the background and the, and, and of what happened, but then also take all that research and then kind of flip it upside down to create these like, what if scenarios, that's kind of what I've been doing. So like, I, I try to educate myself as much as I can with the history and then kind of flip it into an, an alternate kind of history. And, but, but with enough, enough hinting there, so you know what you're looking at, but then it also is like, kind of doesn't make sense in, in, in like historical fact. Mm -hmm. I think that's, and it's hard to explain, but I'm trying, I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think Next, most artists are still yeah. on the journey. Yeah. <laughs> that's my, I'm trying to find that voice where it's like, Hey, look at this. This may or may not have, have happened, but look at it. So you can ask your own questions or try to maybe argue what you're looking at didn't happen or maybe it did. And then it, it allows the viewer hopefully to go back into that history, you know, and I, I try to pick out histories that for me, I didn't learn about, not necessarily 
everyone hasn't learned. But for me, like I didn't know anything about the conquest of New Mexico, for example. Mm. Why did I not learn that in the history books? You know, like Florida and Florida and New Mexico were the original conquests of the United States, not the East Coast. You know, and it blew my mind that I had no idea. I didn't know that the Spanish landed in in St. Augustine, Florida, and then the Rio Grande Valley. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Not amazing, you know what I mean? But like, it was just mind blowing that that history wasn't taught to me. And also just like oil oil trade and how that started. So um, I'm just trying to piece all of it together visually and Mm -hmm. lie about it. (laughs) <laughs> also not lie about it and because sometimes you hear things in the news where you're like what did that really happen and then you do your research and you're like well it did but kind of not as it was stated you know or kind of, yeah so yeah i'm just trying to do do something similar i i love that because i mean what it brings to mind for me is is the very fact that we're taught history as these inert, immovable facts. You know, this idea that you know how your world came to be by Mm -hmm. looking at things that absolutely 100% happened in the way that we're telling you in the past. And and what you were talking about about the the Spanish colonial history and what's what's now the states not being taught like I didn't get that you know because right. we have in in the states we've got this totally Anglo lens so it's like pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock but it's and and that totally gets erased because what is that phrase right like history is written by the victors so who ended up being the pro- the predominant colonial force in what's now the United States. What's interesting for me is this idea of a kind of fact, but also a, a philosophical lens or just the, the framework in which we understand things is so subjective and we're taught that it's so objective. And I got a little bit of a sense of that when one of my favorite courses I took in graduate school was a, was a, a course in pre-Columbian art. And mm-hmm. so just like looking at visuals that existed completely outside of a European framework of thinking was so incredible because it really, it, it, the thing, even like the, the very structure that we sort of take for granted that the way in which we understand how visuals work or, or how truth is, is, is brought to, you know, that's not universal. And so I think what you're doing and kind of playing with, history and lying and not lying it's so clever and to me feels so right (laughs) in the actual factual way that humans have lived and died for a long time and how we understand the passage of time and how we understand causal reality Mm -hmm. yeah that was long sorry i was kind of like (laughs) thinking as i went there but yeah Yeah. no and it's like and then in the in no exactly what you just said and then you find i mean at least i find myself in those they're not lies they're just parts of history that have been chosen to be omitted mm-hmm. that i'm bringing, that i'm bringing back hopefully not into light because they 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 exist but like back into the conversation you know hopefully because you know when i'm doing this research i found this book reading this diary of one of the 
the conquistadors that was in in New Mexico as they were traveling up the Rio Grande and and visiting all the towns, the pueblos, and conquering them. And one of them said that they were with this friar. And the friar's last name, well, the friar, the friar's name is Roque de Figueredo, oh, which is my last name. And I, and my family, my ancestors are from Spain. And that's why I'm doing this research because I'm trying to like find my family tree and figure out like how my ancestors got from Spain to the new world. And were we on these ships? What, what did we do? And it's just, I find it fascinating. So anyway, I found the last name of this friar. That's the first time I've ever seen my last name anywhere let alone in historical text mm. so now yeah. i am convinced whether i'm right or wrong right whether i'm lying or not doesn't matter that i am a descendant of this friar who was killed preaching in in one of the new mexican pueblos and i don't know but i i, I make that's what i'm making work about like how am i tied into all that history mm-hmm. and generations like did i travel that like where was my great 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 grandfather born in new mexico or in mexico and not venezuela how did we get to venezuela? like all that's all those lines that connect these histories are and then i'm a printmaker so lines are everything and then the carving so i think that's my voice really is just using those trajectories those lines those migrations those histories to carve the blocks and that's how it's starting to really come together to be something visually and like conceptually interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that just really connects to this line in your artist statement that I loved, which was that the work thrives when researching historical and current facts and fictions that define the Americas. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that like you personally and and your story and your family and then what we now think of as the americas and how they came to be how that's all so personally interrelated Mm -hmm. is very very rich and and interesting one of the things that i was thinking about when you were were talking too and i don't know if you looked into all of this at all or if it's of interest to you but the way printmaking fits into that very early history of spanish presence in the Americas is pretty fascinating too. I think at one point I came across in graduate school that it was something like the third Spanish ship that came to the quote unquote new world mm-hmm. had a printing press on it. That's like, that's how important it was that they, the, and that it was used to create pamphlets to, to spread Catholicism, to mm-hmm. make laws seem make new laws and and i feel like that's so interesting too that that's in there with your work and with your practice and with the history that you're speaking to yeah no 100 percent. i mean that yeah you know i came across that too and in, in just the research that the, the spanish brought the printing press to mexico and then from there they started printing bibles and, mm-hmm. and got tons of them and handing them out to the pueblos and you know, the indigenous communities and, you know, what else were they printing? We don't know, but all the documents were printed. All the documents that were sent back to Spain were printed. And even all, all the animals were printed, you know, yeah, as, yeah. and sent back to Europe where people, that's when like people started exoticizing the new world and be like, Ooh, I want to live there. Cause look at that Jaguar, look at that palm tree. Look at like, 
oh, it's so beautiful. And that was all artists back then creating prints that were sent back to Europe, which blew everyone's minds. So yeah, for sure. I mean, just the, the history of printmaking and the distribution of, of information is definitely part of why I'm, they asked me earlier, why printmaking that's and creating multiples and mm, information, mm-hmm. and, you know, some, like you just said, once something is printed automatically, it's true. It's yes. fact. Why would someone go through all this trouble to carve something or whatever, etch it or, and print it if it weren't true, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's that truthiness factor in all of printmaking that's just inherent that's just fascinating as well and like the the truth that's sort of inherent in the idea of the multiple where i've seen it more than once and then also as humans we have this really strong bias of whatever we hear first whatever truth we hear first it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. like the objective qualities that that particular truth has it whatever we hear first we believe and so the fact that the, the multiple allows information to travel and spread so much more quickly than kind of anything else that I, well, I heard it this way first. So I'm going to hold on to that mm-hmm. much more strongly than every other. That sort of like plants its flag in your brain, so to speak. And then everything else has to come and challenge it as opposed to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's my metaphor. I don't <laughs> Well, yeah. Kind of what happens when you when you when you learn something first, and yeah, there's that the 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 through line of of printing technology and uh, the colonization of of the Americas. It's it's super interesting, and I feel like not a whole lot is said about it. And I know I'm biased, but I feel like if I was telling that history that's that's in a way where i would start because of course like colonization it's it's not just your city's mind now it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a cultural a religious a spiritual and intellectual colonization as well and all of that doesn't take place on a battlefield necessarily like that comes through and in, in our case like the printing press essentially it seems like yeah yeah, I mean, it's just so complex, and and it everyone is connected in the emergence of. I don't want to say ev- everyone, but the Americas for sure. Everyone is 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 part of the emergence of of Latinx culture because it was the the clashing of Europeans, indigenous people, and Africans, all mm-hmm. coming together in this kind of trading of information and labor, you know, and although it's super tragic what happened to all these communities, it's also beautiful because Latinx culture emerged from that mixing of cultures. And that's what I'm just really obsessed with all the connections that we all have with each other in America. Like I think every, because you had Norwegians coming to the Midwest, you had a lot of Asian populations coming to, to California and, but you know, so many people were just kind of traveling in and out of this, this part, this hemisphere and just traveling everywhere. And it all got the last 500 years has just been, there's, there's connections, I think to everyone, you know, I find that really Mm. beautiful and I want to find them out. You know, I kind of want to be like, Oh, look, maybe your ancestors met here where there was all these like huge trading posts all over, all over the world. And, and I think 
ancestors from from every every walk of life have somehow traveled to another corner of the world and met and mixed with so and so and and this and that and it's just like I th- I feel like there is just this like especially now in a time where everyone is not everyone I don't want an umbrella but there's a lot of a, a lot of like pointing the finger and and divisiveness and I just feel like if we just like follow the lines we're mm-hmm. all this is all us this is all and this is a very <laughs> utopian very hippie way to think about this but I really do the more research I do I'm like wow th- this group of people came here and connected with this group of people and this was built as a result and and you know so there's a lot of beauty in the chaos and I love reading about that and kind of trying to visualize it because it's not told a lot of these For things sure. that I'm finding are just kind of like lost in in history and yeah you know, yeah yeah and and I, and I think we're often told a version of history that again doesn't really emphasize how mobile people were i think we think oh everybody just lived and died in their little village and that's that's normal you know <laughs> that's like that's the natural quote natural state of humans but as you as you spoke to all through 15th 16th 17th century people between asia americas europe africa i mean humans were we're traveling and trading and falling in love and and creating families and creating new generations and that's the natural state of humans i think is is that love connection curiosity respect and and as you say that's like the utopian hippie thing but i think that's what, how we're supposed to be and it's of powers that be that want to consolidate that power and and create and and fear when it's it's our in our DNA instead to be curious and respectful to people I think I hope that's what I feel anyway yeah I mean that's the, that's the you know why we just said it's very like ideal perfect world and it's and it's not and I think there's this balance in life maybe there's like you said the curiosity and love but there's also people that want power and and land and it's just a, mm-hmm. it's just an ongoing balance it's just the way the world is you know so i'm i don't know you have to tell both stories visually yeah mm-hmm. you know but right now I'm, I'm really focused on that curiosity that migration and that like like you said during the age of discovery for 400 years people were on boats just going everywhere everywhere mm-hmm. and traveling and and there was a lot of like i said a lot of tragic not so cool things happening where they were they were traveling but as prisoners or slaves or as property so but that still that still was travel and people ended up places and had families and so yeah it's just it's just it's a balance it's super sad but it's also really uplifting and like poetic and so it's just yeah it's trying to find find the way to make work that tells that story of, of good and bad because nothing's yeah. ideal, nothing's perfect. Nothing's nothing is utopian. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Cause you also don't yeah. want to say something, make something that you don't really know how it's going to make someone feel too. You know what I mean? You gotta be, like you said, it's very respectful. So it's like, sometimes I make an image. I'm like, Oh wow, maybe that happened. And I'm like, wait, like, even if that is make believe, that still may not really land well. Mm. 
you know what I mean? Like as I'm creating these like alternate histories, it's like, well, you know, so I have to also be, be very respectful and aware of the images that I make too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause as you said, it, it is like anything that humans get involved with, you can find just as many stories of like real immoral, unjustifiable actions as you can mm-hmm. the moral uplifting ones. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd love to talk about a, a series in particular and maybe it'll kind of solidify some of the the lofty ideas that we've been batting around. <laughs> but yeah. Paso Por Aquí series. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that and, and what you're doing with it, what it looks like, that kind of thing? Yeah, so this was right around the time when I was reading all the, the diaries of, of the conquistadors and some of the missionaries that were some of the first to arrive in New Mexico. And one of the books talked about this rock that it's a sandstone bluff that's in present day Grants, New Mexico, like heading towards Arizona on 40. It's called El Moro National Monument. And it's a, a sandstone, basically rock face with the conquistadors. There, there's a watering hole there, a, natu- a natural watering hole. That's a, been a place for who knows how long, thousands of years for indigenous people to go and get water. And there was even, there's even ruins at the top of the, of the cliff. But anyway, so the conquistadors would go there to get water for their horses and for themselves. And they would, they wrote, they carved into the rock, these messages, like we're on our way to Zuni. We're on our way to avenge the death of father so-and-so. And it, they're still there, these carved markings on this rock face with the date. So some of them are as early as 1605. One of them is from one of the first governors of New Mexico. And these things are in on the rock face. And I went there and I saw it with my own eyes and I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, how is this not like a, a, as popular as going to an amusement park? Like, how are people not wanting to come see this? This is like actual physical evidence that you can see that's not in a history book of what the conquests look like, you know? So anyway, I was completely fascinated with that. So I, I, the funny part of the story is that I tried to make a rubbing of it on the Mm. rock (laughs) and and the park ranger was like, excuse me, what what do you think you're trying to do here? And I'm like, Oh, I just want to make a rubbing on paper with graphite, like Indiana Jones, you know? And they're like, those are 500 years old. Maybe, maybe don't do that. You know, I was like, Oh, be gentle. (laughs) Just like I totally spaced because I was so excited that I was like, Oh, I'm just going to, you know, so I had my paper, my graphite. So anyway, so I was like, Oh yeah, that was stupid of me to try to do that. So I basically took pictures of them and recreated them digitally. And then, so I started to follow the the maps of the conquistadors, the early conquistadors through New Mexico and following their routes up the Rio Grande Valley all the way up to Taos from close to El Paso starting there. And and then I saw that these these missions were erected at all these famous places. And so I decided to pair the inscriptions with the missions. And I grew up Catholic, very Catholic. My, my family's still very Catholic. So, and then I found the friar with my name and I was just like, wow, maybe I've been to, the, maybe my ancestors were at these missions. Maybe I was a conquistador, like maybe like who knows? So I started to kind of re, retrace these routes and rewalk them. So I, I didn't walk them, I have a car now, but um, 
I visited all these churches and in, in missions in person and drew them and carved them and made prints of them and then coupled them with the inscriptions. And then I also, during these hikes and trying to find these, these missions, which are pretty like isolated, they're hard to get to some of them. I found these dead tree trunks on the ground, which had these beautiful like inscriptions on them themselves, but they were made by bark beetles mm. and they, they're like these really trippy patterns, super abstract. And I was like, wow, these are just gorgeous. So I, I kneel down and I make a rubbing of that. And then I automatically, automatically made the connection of the inscriptions of the bark beetles with the inscriptions at El Moro of the Conquistadores, but also the missions themselves are marks. They're made by hand. They were made right. using, using mud and hay and dried by the sun. So it's just like, you know, all these things happening with the land and making the mark. And so, and then the map routes themselves. So I just got really just completely obsessed with, with these, with these kind of trips that I was taking to retrace the footsteps of, of the conquistadors. But the thing is that I couldn't, I really, I was never going to go to the Pueblos and take pictures of those missions and churches because you, you, you're not allowed to, first of all, you can get, mm-hmm. you can ask for permission, but that's not, I wanted to make sure that I, that I represented churches that were on New Mexico routes and New Mexico roads because that's what I have access to. I didn't want to kind of go into a place that's, I don't want to tell their story or like, mm. you know, that's a, a community that I don't, I don't want to tell that story and I want to respect it. So, but some of the very, very famous missions are on Pueblo land and that are, in, those are in history books where famous revolts happen and battles happen. And I really wanted to visit those, but it's like, no, those are, those are sacred. You know, like I can't, go in the, into those spaces. I'm going to stick to the ones that are in quote unquote American or whatever yeah. state property. So it's just been fascinating and I, I've learned so much and I've traveled so much and yeah, that, that's basically what yeah. the series is about. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is too woo of a question, but I live, I live in the Southwest and I have been to some of those spaces and they always seem to have like an incredibly heavy energy mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. And it's all that kind of thing is so hard to parse out of how much is that am I bringing to that because I know what I'm seeing and that sort of thing. But, but those, those early settlements. And so I'm just curious if, if in your travels, did you, did you feel that? Can you like can you feel that history in that kind of energetic way? And does that do you think come out in the finished images? Yeah, I it is yeah, you could, we could label it as woo-woo, but I my parents lived in Albuquerque for a long time, for about eleven years. And I was in New York in school at the time. And I was like, what are you doing out there? Like, you know, what's, what's out? What, why are you moving to the desert? You know? And so I went to visit. And as soon as I got there, I was like, whoa, I feel something like, mm. I don't know, maybe I'm just like enchanted by the <laughs> Sandia and, you know, the Sangre de Cristo mountains and the sky. But no, like, I was like, no, there's something about it. So I ended up living on and off in New Mexico for the last, since 20, 2008. So for a long time. So Yes, when I go to these places, I definitely, there isn't just an awe 
but also this this feeling that I like I had some part in this something, mm. even though that could be completely false, right? Going back to what what's real and not real, but I I feel a connection to these sites, and I feel a connection to the Rio Grande Valley and those the, these roads, like the high road to Taos, Chimayo. When I'm yeah. driving through there, it just seems like I'm I've been there. Even when I went for the first time, I was like, I've been here, like. You know what I mean? I'm, I connect to it, and 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 I don't like saying that because I'm not from New Mexico. I'm from Venezuela, but there's something that there's a, a connection there where I feel super comfortable, mm. but I'm also scared as hell. Yes, yeah. And and I don't know what that means because when I'm standing in front of these missions, the, most of the time they're closed because they're only open for because they're so old and delicate and fragile that they're only open for maybe Easter. Or a really important Saints Day, and then there's no no regular mass in them. So you're kind of standing there by yourself, and no one's coming in and out of them. The doors are locked. You know the gates have a padlock on them. But I'm super comfortable in front of them. I'm like, oh man, this is great. Like I could chill here all day. Mm-hmm. And it, something comes over me in the next second. The uh, the cloud blocks the the sun, or like a little wind picks up, and then I'm like, oh wait, no. I'm terrified. There's so much energy and power and like history here all around that I can't see that has been kind of swept up through the time and wind and land. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, I mean, and then we were just talking about good and bad and balance. I just feel like when I stand there and I'm drawing them, cause I try not to want to make sure I, I draw them as well as photograph them for reference, but the drawing is super important, you know, kind of like the early, we're talking about the history of printmaking. All the famous printmakers that spent time in New Mexico, even painters, they were obsessed with these missions and churches. And they would go mm-hmm. and Mars and Hartsley, all these people were just painting and drawing these churches because they had that energy that you can't put your finger on. But yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's yeah. If I could do, if, I, if it was a movie, it'd be like a flashback as I'm standing in front of right. them. And then it'd be like 20 generations earlier. It's my friar doing something awful i don't know you know so it's just like i just Mm -hmm. i live in that i live in that fantasy but also understand the complexities and like how tragic those fantasies are too yeah yeah it feels like very precious and tragic and moving parts of our shared history truly our shared history that gets really glossed over or just forgotten. I wonder if it's just because the land is so beautiful and it's kind of looking at you at the same time, the, the, just the New Mexico landscape, it almost feels like it has eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at you as you're looking or traveling through it. And I feel like, I don't know why it hasn't been developed. You know, you would think, I've been watching that show on on TV, The Yellowstone you know, mm-hmm. with Kevin Costner, and they're just fighting over developing hotels and ski resorts and stuff like that. Like, there's so much space in New Mexico and northern New Mexico surrounding these these routes that I'm taking in these missions. And I'm like, how is this? Because you can't develop it. It's too beautiful. It's there's too much energy. There's too much history to to develop these areas. And you know, I'm sure there is the same. You could say the same for Yellowstone if we're <laughs> using the show as a reference, but I don't know. There's something truly like magical 
in in these these spaces that like I think there's just a total respect that developers hopefully are just like no let's just leave this the way it is mm-hmm. you know it's just too it's too much to to try to to try to change this this landscape I don't know yeah right? it's it is shockingly beautiful out there yes. and you would think why why isn't someone trying to make money off of this? It's mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> this is so un-American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hope you get a chance to to come out and do more and and come say hi to Tim and I next time you're in that part of the world because we're just very recent transplants to that area. And mm-hmm. and you know, we'd we'd love to see and know more of it ourselves, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 So in the time we have left, do you have anything on the horizon that you're looking forward to? Anything you want to shout out or make people aware of out there? Yeah. Shout out to, I have a solo show opening up at Foreman Concept in Santa Fe on Friday the 31st, Friday, March 31st. But then also Print Santa Fe is about to happen April 28th. I'm very much looking forward to that. And my work will still be up during that time. So yeah, I just want to shout out Foreman Concept and Flatbed Press, who mm-hmm. honestly opened up their space for me to create the prints that we've been talking about, Flatbed Press in, in Austin. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to being back in New Mexico, and, and maybe I'll get a chance to go do some exploring while I'm there, too. Absolutely. And then where can people find you and follow you and see your work? They can go to my website, which is my first name, last name, dot com. And then Instagram, same thing, first name, last name. And yeah, they can also come to the show. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll link all of that in the show notes. And yeah, it's been really fun to chat about everything. So thank you so oh, much for, you. for making the time to do so. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of heady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stuff going on but you know and it's fun it's nice to to go there kind of escape mm-hmm. a little bit in some some strange worlds you know but. yeah it's my favorite <laughs> my favorite kind of talk I, I don't know I, I i love it i love world building in conversations <laughs> cool if you like today's episode we have a patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Ron Abram. We talk about his childhood growing up in the religious context of Puerto Rican Catholicism and the social context of the 1970s in West Berlin. Getting inspiration from pop culture and Grimm's fairy tales, postmodernism, and David Bowie. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.